Good morning, everybody. I am an orthopaedic surgeon, which um, by definition means that I've only got three neurons up here, so I'm afraid I cannot offer you content or knowledge in my talk. But what I'd like to share with you is my passion for patient experience and how I believe that as leaders we can spread the word. Three years ago, I performed a patient satisfaction survey on one of the wards in my hospital. And I asked one simple question, and that is, who do you believe gave you the best care during your stay? How can you explain that 7 out of 10 patients voted Sean the cleaner as the one who cared for them the most? Now, I subsequently did one-to-one -one interviews with the patients, and three themes and reasons emerged. The first reason was that Sean seemed always happy and smiled while she was working. The second was that she chatted with everybody, patients and staff alike. Rarely about work, sometimes about trivial things like the weather or the, the traffic outside, but most often about the things that patients cared for the most, their family and their homes. And the third reason that came out was that she was the one constant in their life. She was a person that they saw most often. And what human being doesn't love familiarity? I believe that my duty as a clinical leader is to aspire to be more like Sean and to cultivate and nurture more people like Sean in my organisation who have a passion for the work that they do. Now, if I was a factory worker, let's say making little TV parts, then does it really matter whether or not I understood or believed in the work that I do? After all, I'm just a small link in the chain, and is it just okay for me to come in, work on time, do my work exactly as prescribed, and then just go home? It is this belief that makes an organisation fail. I believe that a great organisation is one where the employees believe and understand the purpose of their work, and that purpose is to serve others. Because in serving others, they are serving themselves and the people around them. And they can actually understand that they are there to serve the patient experience. Sometimes I worry that the NHS is that failing organisation. But I know that the NHS can be a great organisation. One of my challenges as a leader is to understand that I'm on a transformation journey, one that may take years, if not decades, to achieve and realise. And so I have to understand to accept my frustrations, and this is not a project that can be completed by May of 2015. And I also have to accept and embrace uncertainty, which means that sometimes I will fail. Now, what I'd like to share with you are three stories which I believe illustrate three important ingredients necessary for this transformation process. The first story is a very personal one, and this is a story about my mother. And this story is about purpose. And when so people ask me about why I do what I do, this is a story that I tell them. The second story is about trust, and it's just an example of a small thing that I changed in my clinical practice and what it meant in terms of patient experience. The third story 
is a story about inspiration. And this is a story about how a patient inspired me and a group of doctors to perform their work at their very best and, importantly, to find fulfilment in their work. So, as a clinical leader, I think that it's important for me to remind myself constantly of the stories and the experiences that make up my values and beliefs because it's my values and beliefs that gives me the drive and the passion to inspire others. But sometimes these stories are quite painful to tell and to reflect upon. But it's important that I do this because it's only in doing so that I start to accept my vulnerabilities, that maybe I'm not a good leader, that sometimes I can't achieve great things or have people follow me, and that I am human after all, and I will make big mistakes. I bet you never thought that an orthopedic surgeon would say that. (laughs) So the first story occurred four years ago, and it was Christmas time. My parents were visiting us for Christmas dinner, and about three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve, my father woke me up in a blind panic and said my mother had collapsed. So I rushed over to her room, and there she was, in the middle of the bedroom, collapsed, white as a sheet. And for one moment, I was absolutely convinced that she was dead. Unfortunately, she wasn't. She had a condition called fast AF, which is a condition where your heart goes absolutely haywire and basically stops pumping blood around the the body. And it is potentially a life-threatening condition. So I put her in my car. We only live 10 minutes away from my hospital, and I rushed her over to A&E. And, of course, all the staff in A&E recognised me and knew me, and my mother was treated with the utmost courtesy and rushed into the recess room. And in 20 minutes, she had had an ECG, a chest X-ray, blood tests, ACS protocol, and her heart was back into a normal rhythm. She had amazing care. After that, I called my colleague, consultant physician, and he was very <coughs> kind enough to come in in the middle of the night and to see to my mother. And she was admitted for two days on the medical assessment unit. For two days, I visited her twice a day. I brought her everything that she asked for and even sneakily sort of checked on her charts and made sure everything was okay and her robs are fine. (laughs) And after two days, she was better. She was still weak, but better. And she came back home and spent a week with us. By all known metrics, her care in my hospital was amazing. She had courtesy, Reliable care, efficient care, expeditious care, safe care, the very best that medicine uh, could offer. And most importantly, she was better. I felt quite proud, actually, that my mother could see how great my hospital was and how great the staff were. Two months later, I visited her uh, at her house, and I just happened to ask her, so what did you think of my hospital? And what she said after this Uh, Words can't even describe how I felt. Ashamed, guilty, like I'd betrayed her, probably sums up what I felt. And she said that the two days I spent in hospital was the worst experience of my life. I spent two days petrified, not knowing what's happening to me, what was about to happen, and as far as she was concerned, she wasn't going to make it out of the hospital and see her grandkids again. How can a mother's son, who is a doctor in the very hospital that she was at, not see the world through her eyes? 
And if I couldn't see the world through her eyes, who's my mother that I dearly love, then what chance did my patients have whom I didn't know at all? What this taught me was two things. First thing is compassion is not innate, even in those people that you love. And in my case, it was pride that stopped me from seeing the world through my mother's eyes. And the second thing I learnt was that even though we do everything right, that does not necessarily mean that the patient has a positive experience. I mean, the things that happen do inform the experience. But actually, experience is about how you feel about the things that happened. And importantly, what you feel about the things that didn't happen. This is a story I tell that explains why I do what I do. The second story is that of trust. And I am a, a surgeon, and I think as surgeons, we often underestimate the degree of trust that patients impart and gift to us, particularly when you're talking about surgery. I mean, what human in their rational mind would give that much unconditional trust to somebody they do not know, whose sole job is to take you apart and put you back together again? I mean, what happens if I can't put you back together again? The problem is that we often confuse the, the difference between consent and trust. Consent is a rational action based on a logical analysis of risk versus benefit. Whereas trust is inextricably a human feeling, a human response, and is often irrational. I mean, I'll trust my mother-in-law with my most valuable possessions, which are my children, but I wouldn't trust her to drive my Volvo two, two miles down the road. <laughs> So I think trust is really quite important. And what we've sought to do is to gain more trust from the patients. And the way that we believe that we could do that is to do more for patients, give more appointments, offer the latest and best medical technologies, and offer more information for patients. The problem is, is that I think that in doing so, we lose some of the introspection. And rather than worrying about how to get more trust from patients, maybe we should be thinking about how we make ourselves more trustworthy. And I believe that there are three elements to trustworthiness. The first is competence. And patient safety absolutely should be at the highest level of our priorities. The second is reliability, which is about delivering what we promise to deliver. And the third is honesty. And one of the elements about honesty is the ability to make ourselves just that little bit vulnerable. I mean, we all love buying TVs from John Lewis, right? I mean, we trust them because they give us a five-year money-back guarantee. But that trust that we feel for John Lewis comes from the fact that they have made themselves a little bit vulnerable. So I thought about the consultations I have with my patients, and I see 500 patients a year. And I read an interesting research from Toronto that suggested that it is the ending of a story that had the most impact on the experience. And we've all gone to see a film where it was a fantastic film, except the last two minutes, they wrecked the, you know, wrecked the ending, and it just ruined our experience. And I came up with an idea. And the thing about ideas is that none of it's ever new. 
If you've thought of it, it's already been done. And I came up with an idea where it's been thought of for a trillion times in the world. And the idea was quite simple, and it's this, which is a business card. It's got my name, it's got my email address, it's got my number, and it's got my secretary's name on it. At the end of each consultation, I give this to the patient. And I say to them, if you're worried about anything at all, or if you need me for any reason, I want you to contact me. And I give them this card. The value in what I do here is not in the card. It's in its meaning. And what I'm trying to say, and what I want to say to patients, is thank you for the gift of trust that you've given me. Now, I want to make myself that little bit vulnerable, but I want to trust you and I give the patient the card. Now, probably one of my patients said it best, actually, Bartholomew Day. And what he said was that making yourself available to me makes me feel as if you really, truly care. The final story, which I'd like to tell you, is about Minnie. Now, Minnie is a 92-year-old lady, delightful lady. And she was admitted under my care two months ago. She was very independent, lived on her own, not particularly active uh, at that age, but she loved reading books, and she was sharp as a razor. Unfortunately, she fell, and she broke her hip. And a hip fracture is a very terrible condition to have, because not only is it really painful, but in virtually every patient, we have to do an operation. Otherwise, it will mean a sure and painful death. And so she was admitted... And she was in significant amounts of pain. The problem with Minnie was that she had a condition called aortic stenosis, and the severest form of that as well, which basically meant that the heart didn't pump any blood around her body. Her latest cardiology consultation stated that it is a miracle that she is even alive. So she was seen by two of my uh, consultant anaesthetists, and it was their combined decision and, and opinion that if we were to take Minnie to theatre, she had nearly a 100% chance that she would die as soon as the anaesthetic drugs were given and that she wouldn't even make it onto the operating table. So I went back and I told Minnie this, and she said, I don't want to die, I don't want to die like this. I, I'm, I, I'm in too much pain. I want you to do the operation. I want you to trust me because I'm going to make it. The problem is that there was so much fear now that two consultant anaesthetists had seen Minnie. I mean, really, look at it from the doctor's perspective. I mean, you know, no doctor, no human being wants to be actively responsible for a patient's death. I mean, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, what would you do in that situation you know, where you've got a nearly 100% chance of death either way? And this was difficult. I didn't, I didn't have an answer. So I went back home and I went to bed and I woke up in the morning and I didn't have an answer for Minnie. So what I did is I just picked up my phone and I phoned everybody, everybody that I knew. Six consultant anaesthetists, two intensive care consultants, one cardiology consultant, two orthopaedic consultants and one orthogeriatric consultant. And I got each one of them to talk to each other. And I told each one of them that I was responsible, I will be responsible for what happens to Minnie and that it wasn't on their head. Now, something interesting happened because by the afternoon, 
the whole of theatre were talking about Minnie. I mean, it, it kind of helps that she had this lovely name, Minnie, but the whole of theatre were talking, even in areas where they weren't involved in orthopaedic surgery. And that a decision was made that we were going to do this because Minnie wanted it. Every safety measure possible was taken that day in theatre. And she got her operation with the whole of the theatre staff rooting for her. And a miracle happened. She survived. And for two days after her operation, I was getting phone calls from people that had heard that story asking how Minnie was. <laughs> she inspired us. She inspired us to do our work at our very best and to achieve an amazing thing. But achievements come and go. I mean, we do 700 such operations for patients every year. No, what she gave us was a gift that's far greater than that. What she gave us was fulfilment in our work and a recognition and a reminder of why we do the work that we do. I've been away from home for five days now, and before I came away, I went up and saw Minnie, and she was looking very weak. There's only so much that a 92-year-old body can take. The day before yesterday, I received a phone call, and Minnie had passed away this weekend peacefully. Now, I want to tell you the ending of the story. When I went up and saw her, she was in her bed, in her nightdress, as I have seen her every time that I have visited her, with the sheets neat around her. And I said to Minnie, um, Minnie, every time I come and see you, you're always in bed. It would be good for you just to sit out once in a while and maybe try and take a few steps with the physiotherapist because you'll get stronger and you'll feel better for yourself. And she looked at me straight in the eyes and said, I'm 92. Why do I need to walk? <laughs> I'm happy in my bed, thank you very much. And if I wanted to walk, I'll tell you. <laughs> and you know what? She was right. Thank you. <laughs>